Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Hey everyone, this is Patrick. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast. I have an incredible guest. It's a dear friend of mine, Ken McElroy. Kenny and I actually had an interview that lasted over an hour. And so we are breaking the podcast into two parts. The first part is going to be his investment philosophy as well as the current state of the real estate market. And then next week, part two is going to be a discussion we had about the economy. Now, if you guys don't know who Ken McElroy is, Kenny is first a real estate investor. He's written a number of books on the subject. He's been an investor for over three decades. He also is a rich dad advisor. And what that means is he works alongside of Robert Kiyosaki, who is the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And Kenny has really just developed a giving attitude over the year. Maybe over the years, he was probably born with it. But he is doing so much on YouTube. He has a, a ton of digital resources that you guys can get access to at kenmacroy.com. But instead of prolonging this introduction, go ahead over to thewellstandard.com. We have uh, show notes, which includes all of his uh, book links, as well as some codes to get a discount on some of his digital resources. Kenny also has a podcast that he, he does. So go check him out, even if you don't go and and take advantage of some of his digital resources. This is a guy you guys definitely want to follow. He's done billions of dollars of real estate, tens of thousands of doors, and just has a really incredible philosophy when it comes to how he invests. I think that's really important right now because we're at the crossroads of so many different elements, whether it's housing, whether it's the economy, whether it's unemployment, whether it's government intervention, possible inflation, most likely inflation. And it's going to stir up emotions for those that don't necessarily have a sound investment philosophy. We've already seen that with the amount of people that have lost money on trading, different things. We've spoken on the podcast extensively about that. And it's going to continue and most likely amplify. Now, there are two things that are going to happen. You can either succumb to these emotional whims and make bad decisions or you can find the opportunities which will be there in spades. And Kenny actually drops a couple of really insightful things when it comes to possible future opportunities in the real estate market. So pay close attention. Guys, thanks so much for the support. Appreciate you. Let's get into my interview, my part one of the interview with Ken McElroy. 
Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me on this incredible interview. I guess that's somewhat presumptuous, but I know Kenny. <laughs> I've known him for a while, and he's a mountain of knowledge. And I'm grateful for the opportunity for you guys to learn. I'm excited to learn as well. Kenny is uh, Ken McElroy. I have a bunch of your books here. You never stop writing these books. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you know, one that you. came out recently, ABCs of buying rental property. You got, you know, ABCs of real estate investing. There's a bunch of others too, but you've written extensively about real estate, but also entrepreneurship. And I'm excited to have you on because there's a lot going on in the world right now. And 90% of it has to do with real estate. <laughs> and yeah. I just can't wait to, to learn from you. I mean, obviously we had you on last year and things were kind of chaotic, but I'm curious to see where things are at from your vantage point. Good. Well, thanks, Patrick. It's always great to catch up with you. I love your stuff. And I love following your investment philosophies. And I know uh, we've been friends a, a while and I adore your family. So let's get to it. Let's talk about what, what we see, our crystal ball. Well, let's start there. You know, I think it'd be important for you maybe just to take a moment and describe your investment philosophy, like how you view investments, purpose, good investment, bad investment. Well, I think it's funny, like, uh, you know, might as well just talk her, you know, real time, like the GameStop thing is, you know, still a buzz and how that happened and what happened and all of that. That's exactly what I don't like to do. <laughs> That's an example of, yeah, I'm not saying that uh, people didn't make money, but I know people lost money. And, uh, a lot of people. and so in my opinion, that's a bit of gambling. That's throwing your money into something and hoping that it goes up. And um, that's not at all what, what I do. That's what we would call a capital gain strategy. That's, that's like flipping a house, although obviously that would take a lot longer. Buying something, hoping the market takes it up and then selling it. I'm not saying that you can't make money that way, but I'm, what I'm saying is that we don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if the market's going to crash next month, next year. Can it keep going? People have very strong opinions, however, on that. And uh, that's what actually gets them in trouble. And so, what I like to do is I like to buy for cash flow. And so, all of my deals, Patrick, as you know, are cash flow based. I, I don't have an exit philosophy. In other words, I'm not trying to time anything. So, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to buy an asset, I'm trying to use other people's money uh, to buy it, uh, the bank or investors or whatever. I'm trying to make cash flow so that everyone gets paid. And then I want the occupants or the tenants or the residents or whatever you want to call them to pay it off. And then I want the tax consequences from that and I want to hold it. And so it's a lot slower strategy. It's a lot harder. It takes a lot more knowledge. You have to have a lot of experience to do it well. That's my philosophy. And it's proven to be a good one. When you can get a tenant to pay off your asset, why wouldn't you? Right. So, so that's it in a nutshell. I think also adding to that, you have some predominant, you know, investment purposes, right? People invest for capital gains or people invest for, for income, for cash flow. And and I look at the end result being unknown to most people. They don't ask themselves, why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? But if you look at income, if you look at cash flow that produces month in and month out. Right, that impacts what I think people are really after, which is a better lifestyle, right? And yeah. capital gains is, you know, it's a short-term strategy, and also it has a lot more risk associated with it. But in the end, I think if people question their motives and their purpose, they would think twice about 
putting a lot a lion's share of their wealth into that type of strategy. Yeah, that's right. And you know, and it's really interesting if you just take it in bite sizes. So, so what I did, my very first thing, Robert calls it financial freedom, you know, so he kind of branded it. But when I was at, getting out of university, that was my first thought. Okay, how at the time my expenses were super low, like two or three grand a month or something, right? And I was like, okay, so how do I cover that? How can I cover that with cash flowing assets? And then from there, that would be my first step at financial freedom. And, you know, like most people though, you know, I started buying bigger houses and better cars, you know, I'm driving around an old Volkswagen when I was in college. And there are things that you want to help your business and all that. And so your monthly expenses do go up. But uh, my philosophy never did, which is how do I generate enough passive income to cover my monthly expenses? And then when that happened, Patrick, everything changed because all of a sudden, I was like, okay, now I can do deals that I want to do. There's no real pressure on me. My bills are covered. And so now, what do I want to do next? You know, and that's when I started to build my business and start to create other streams of income like that. And of course, you know, that's all I do now. And now I have all this passive income. And you know, the deals keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But the core philosophy, first, it was me. How do I become financially free? Then it was my company. How do I generate enough passive income in my company to make it financially free so I don't have to be there. And so that's really been my philosophy. It's been the same the whole time is the cash flow philosophy covering your expenses so that you can now take a month off, take three months off. You know, as you know, I when my kids were in spring break, fall break, summer break, whatever, I took that time off period. And so I never worked during those periods of time. And that was because of this philosophy. I had money coming in. Well, there's whether it's Abraham Maslow or other sociologists, psychologists, right? They they've narrowed in on this motivation of human beings. And I think some of the first motivations that people are after is certainty, right? They want some foundation that they can count on. Capital gains is not that strategy. Cash flow is, especially of education around developing that. And when when you start to establish those foundations of of certainty, right, then risk or or uncertainty, the variety of life, going on vacation, buying a car trying this with business, trying that with business, it becomes more digestible, especially given the fact that not all experiments work out, not all bets work out, not all risks work out. But if you have that foundation of certainty, you learn from it, right? As opposed to be taken out of the game from it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think a lot of people work their whole lives for that certainty. You know, they do it differently. You know, they put their money in 401ks or IRAs or Hand their money over to wealth managers. That is the whole point. The whole point is that's what they're selling is they're selling future certainty. I just decided that I didn't want to hand that off to other people. I, I wanted to do it myself. I wanted to learn myself. And also, if I did do that, or I ever had to do that, or I wanted to do that, let's say, I wanted to know what to ask them, what to say, and let them articulate the reasons. And, and maybe I could learn from them, or maybe I could teach them. Uh, but I, I never understood the philosophy of, of working your butt off and handing your money over to somebody for the rest of your life and then you know meeting with them once a year. That just didn't make any sense to me. It's kind of a mirage of certainty. It's this future promise that you know, not many people are actually able to get to materialize. But let's, let's move on from that. I think we beat that dead horse. Yeah. You know, let's, let's end with something that you did last year. I, I, I started seeing you on social media wearing this like Be Infinite shirt. 
And I thought that was intriguing. I bought one. I wear it often. There's, a, I, I went to totally like jeans and a long sleeve black t-shirt pretty much every day, except for my B infinite t-shirts. That's my new attire because, you know, no one's in the office anymore. Describe, you know, how that came to be and what that has to do with your philosophy. Yeah. So it started with my infinite return. I'm working on a book called Infinite Return, which is basically how do you invest a bunch of money and then get it back tax-free and then still own the property or the asset and not have any money in it? And how does it continue to produce cash flow when you actually don't have any physical investment? That's called an infinite return when you create something from nothing or you use somebody else's money and then you give it back to them and you still own it and it produces you know, a long-term annuity. And so that's how it started. So I bought the domain name, Be Infinite, and we started rebranding it. And then uh, what happened is it kind of took off. Like people are like, well, Be Infinite doesn't have to just mean financial, right? Mm-hmm. It could mean, you know, the mindset and all these kinds of things. So it's kind of a work in progress. I'm not really completely done with it yet, but uh, we are going to roll something well, out. Well, it's infinite, so you can never be done with it, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So it's been fun, you know, to listen and weigh into other people. You know, a lot of the people that follow me or they send her some really cool stuff, you know, about how they became infinite. It's it's not a financial thing, as I learned. I kind of started off that way, but I've kind of opened my mind up to it's really it applies to a lot of things. It could be in your relationships, it could be in your mindset, it can be in your health, it could be in your finances. So that's kind of where it's heading now. And and you know, stay tuned on that one. I still am going to do the book Infinite Return, which is more about real estate. But I'm excited about the where that's headed. Well, we'll we're going to put links on uh, the show notes to your website. So if you guys that are listening want to pick up your Be Infinite shirts, just go uh, to thewellstandard.com into the show notes. We'll also put links to to Kenny's books in there. And he's also going to talk about some online digital resources he has for you in in just a second. But Kenny, let's move on to real estate, right? And and what's going on because there are some pretty significant shifts happening. And sometimes that takes people out of the mindset where they feel comfortable making an investment. So maybe talk about the obstacles you typically see with newer investors and why they they don't pull the trigger and then how they can start to develop the mindset where they have the confidence to take that first step. Yeah. Great question. Well, first of all, I want to just acknowledge how hard it is to go from working somewhere really hard and then trying to wrap your head around something so different because it is different and you, I get it. I totally get it. I mean, there's a lot of people, I call it analysis paralysis. You know, they, they sit and they, you know, they don't want to make a mistake. I completely get that. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety, stress and fear beyond that. And so, but I will tell you that what I find is if you're just open a little bit to the idea, then, and you can look at things like if I'm at, at, sitting at dinner with the stock guy, he's fully against real estate. That's just the way it is. There's no, not really very many stock guys that are real estate advocates. Now, there's a reason. It's a financial reason. Obviously, they get commissions and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to be a stock guy. I'm just saying they're really closed mind and they're biased. So the hardest part is being biased. And so when you, when you are wherever you are, let's say you grew up very poor like I did, and my parents were poor and they would always say, you know, we can't afford that. We can't afford that. You know, and we couldn't, you know, all those kinds of things. You got to kind of get out of your own way 
I found. And so that's kind of the first step and is backing up from the scenario and saying, okay, I'm in a bad relationship. Why? Or I'm in a bad financial situation. Why? Or I'm not happy at my job. Why? You know, like, like, but people don't do that. What they do is they point fingers out and they go, it's their fault. You know, it's somebody else. How can it be me? So, and I think that once you start to take a look at your, and be truthful and what I call brutally honest on where you are, then, then you start to, you don't have to tell everybody, (laughs) you know, you just have to do it. And then, then you can start to open your mind a little bit about, okay, you know, maybe, maybe I am a little bit biased. We all have biases. You know, it's interesting. I, it's a long story, but I actually had to go through a bunch of bias training to be a, on the sheriff's posse for Arizona. And it was fascinating. You know, I was in the room with all these Maricopa County sheriffs and, you know, it was all over this whole issue between Mexico and the U.S. and all that. It's fascinating. The biases. And I was like, you know, I have my own biases the way I grew up. I have biases around money. I have biases around all kinds of things. And so once you can kind of step back from that and kind of peel that back and say, where do I want to be? You know, that I love that be, do, have, right? Be, do, have. You want to have, you have to be. First, you have to be. And I think people struggle with that. They hold on tight to their beliefs and, and they don't believe that they are, you know, and it could be religion too, you know, as you know, like, so I don't want to make this political or religious or what the point is, is that people have their beliefs and that is what it is. And then they defend them. And so it's the same thing with real estate. And so I think once people realize, because there's millions of people making money in real estate, and there's millions of people doing really well in real estate. And as you know, you do both. And so you just have to have an open mind first, you know, and just start letting new stuff in. There are tax advantages and there are people that need, we're, we're heading into a renter nation, Patrick, as you know, like, I mean, how can you have 3.5 million people in mortgage forbearance and, you know, another 10 to 20 million people facing eviction and not have a rental issue, you know? But also defaults on debt, you know, takes them out of the credit game, right? Because they can't qualify. Right, right, right. Like, okay, so you cannot, it's like acknowledging live births, you know, like, like how many people are going to turn 50 next year? Like, we already know the number, like, you know what I mean? Everybody knows this, it's data. And so we have this data that shows that, you know, the next couple of years are going to be rough and we're going to turn just like in 08, 09 and 2010, which I was involved in, that people are going to have to rent more, you know, and then it'll swing back to home ownership just like it always does. Totally fine. But at the moment, there's going to be massive, massive pressure on the rental housing market because the, there's going to be way more demand than there is supply. So if you get step back from it, instead of just saying, I'm a stock person or, you know, my brother's a great example, by the way. He was the A student in our house, <laughs> and he is very, 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 very bright. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. But when when he retired, I asked him. I said, "How you doing?" He's like, well, "I don't know. Like, I haven't really even, you know, went down a bit." I go, "Really? Like, you don't even know what you're? No, no. I just trust him." And and so that is the marketing behind it all. And uh, you know, I mean, I'm his brother. Like, we're together all the time. We talk all the time. You know, I'm over here building this massive real estate portfolio. He doesn't even ask a question. Taking a break from the show, you know, entrepreneurs inspire me. I love meeting leaders of successful ventures who discover an idea, formulate the business, and then execute. You'd assume that they know how to structure their personal finances. I believed that too, but I was wrong. 
Entrepreneurs are never taught to effectively manage their wealth to work alongside their business and lifestyle. All of that work, effort, toil, and time wasted. Entrepreneur 101 is an online course that teaches you a financial strategy that works so that success is not a flash in the pan, but lasting. The spirit of the entrepreneur doesn't have to be compromised. Register for the Entrepreneur 101 course today for free at thewealthstandard.com forward slash E-N-T. That's Echo November Tango. Thewealthstandard.com forward slash E-N-T. Well, I think there's some primary fears that people have. One is having to change and two is being wrong, (laughs) right? And it's like, we don't really realize it, right? Until we're arguing politically, arguing religiously, right? But those fears dominate us, whether we want to believe it or not. And I think, you know, real estate being something different than what people are programmed and conditioned to believe is investment and where they should put their money and what that means, right? It's different. At the same time, it's like, look at how the world is evolving in every capacity, you know, transportation, entertainment, work, right? It's always evolving. It's always changing. And so it's kind of like, you have these two pulls, right? You have the pull because things are changing and you have to adapt and this pull to want to stay the same. <laughs> so, oh. you know, it's not, it's not surprising. And, and that's where, you know, I would say those obstacles are very mental. At the same time, you run numbers, read books, have an open mind. It's like real estate purchasing it the right way, like is infinitely less risky than what people are typically doing. I'll tell you a funny story. I've had drivers for a long time. So I, way before Uber, I had this guy, Ted. I love Ted. He was my driver. He would take me to the airport. He would take me. I was going to go out and, and have a couple of drinks. He would come get me, drop me off. I was going to go to a sporting event, da, da, da. So he was on, basically, I had him on a contract, right? And so I was in San Francisco, which is one of the areas that they started Uber. You know, they kind of piloted it. I don't know if you remember. And I'm like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. So I, I leave Uber, you know, come back to Phoenix. Ted picks me up and I'm like, Ted, you got to, like, you really need to take a look at this Uber thing. He's like, oh, there's no way that thing is, there's no way there's, Nobody's ever going to use that service. And that's my point. I never forgot that because I was like, well, sure enough, you know, Ted's out of business, right? Because people can call a black car and get it whenever they want. And, and they don't have to have anything like that. It's just very, very easy. That's my point. You know, whether it's my brother, or my parents, it doesn't really matter. Like they have these fixed mindsets on where they are. And I think that's the first thing, Patrick, if people can shake that. Well, Kenny, we're in the middle of like, massive disruption, right? And I think we were already going in that direction. You came out here a couple of years ago and we're going up uh, skiing and we drove around the city and I was pointing out just all these apartment buildings that were going up and it's everywhere. It's city blocks coming down, right? Ripping down old buildings and putting up these masks and it continues. COVID obviously was one of those other massive shocks to the system. So how do you explain the impact that 2020 had on the real estate market and What's going to be happening this year and maybe the near future because of it? Well, so a couple of things. I don't think we've really seen yet the impact. So in other words, the government said, hey, everybody go home basically and shut down. We can go on and on and on about that. You know, states and cities and towns and mayors and governors and whatever. But the bottom line is, is that the government 
threw a whole bunch of money at, at this issue, you know, and they needed to stimulus, unemployment, PPE, EIDL, and then, you know, there's uh, the forbearance and the eviction moratorium and all those kinds of things. Okay. So that has masked, in my opinion, the whole problem. Look at the facts. We have 10 million more people still unemployed or somewhere in there. We have three and a half to 4 million people in forbearance and about 3 million of those people are seriously delinquent. We have anywhere from, you know, maybe 15 million people facing some kind of eviction. Okay. And they just keep kicking the can down the road. And by the way, I'm a landlord. I believe they should. I mean, you can't tell people they can't go to work and then have the backside of it. Problem is the landlords are having problems, a lot of the small landlords. And so there's cracks showing up. There's people behind on their rent. There's people behind on their on their mortgages. There's people that have lost their businesses forever. They've lost their life savings forever. There's well over 100,000 businesses that have shut down. Cities are going to lose their tax revenues. And there's it's going to be a mess for years. All of that has been propped up by this money. You know, and I know we'll probably get to that at some point. But and so I don't really think that it's shown up yet. And but it's all there. It's all sitting there. So the the question is, is when is the government going to stop backstopping all that? And I thought it would be earlier, but nope, you know, with Biden coming in and the new administration kind of kicking down the road a little bit longer, but it's there. And so there are real people behind that. There are real landlords that can't pay their mortgages. There are real people that can't afford their cars, real people that can't afford their rent, real people that can't afford all kinds of things right now that they maybe financed. And so all that's going to make its way. And also, I think businesses have changed the way they do business a lot. And so, you know, you're going to have massive issues on the office building side. You know, you're going to have all the malls are done, right? Any kind that was of already happening. Stuff. Yep. Yeah. So we're going to have a very different economy moving forward. And I, I don't think that we've yet seen the, the issue. Yes, revenues are down. Yes, rents are down. Yes, returns are down. Not with everything, but uh, yes, businesses are closing. Yes, people are losing money. But the mainstream media doesn't seem to be talking about much about that. But it is there. And so I think that I made a prediction in a video that actually I'm coming out that I think that the fourth quarter of this year is really going to be exposed a lot. But I think next year is just going to really, really be rough. Well, you mentioned a myriad <laughs> of things right there. And I understand the objective of what the government tried to stimulate at the same time. Right when you do that, there's always the benefit that you, you get from it, but there's also the unintended consequence. And it'll be interesting to see how those unintended consequences play out. And this might be important to talk about the migration, the migratory patterns of employees, but also you know states that have high taxes, maybe even states that were a little too strict on their protocols when it came to the quarantine. I mean, talk about that because not only do we have this massive stimulus that is not only conditioned people psychologically to look to government to help solve their problems, right? But you also have massive amounts of resources, money, right, that have gone into not necessarily the most productive areas to stimulate. It's more to just like fill a void, but the hole's still there and continuing yeah. to drain. So maybe talk about how COVID has impacted cities, what people being able to work remotely, how they're going about moving from state to state. I mean, speak, speak to that because I know there's a lot going on there. There is. 
you know, in every city and state and town is a little bit different. I had a conversation with a guy uh, last week. Uh, he, was, he was on the 35th floor of a building in New York City. And I was chatting with him and he's a finance guy. And we were talking about some debt and equity. And, and I said, so, you know, what's it like there? And, you know, I've talked to other people there as well. And he said, well, our building normally has five to 8,000 people a day coming and going. And he said, the New York Times did an article on our building. They came and interviewed the door people and, you know, the people. That, and right now it's about 100 a day. And he said the hot dog guy out front usually sells about 400 hot dogs a day in the corner. And they interviewed him and he's at, right now he's doing 10. And so just think about, just pick on that for a moment. But, and I know I'm in New York, but the point is, is this is going on in a lot of Seattle. It's going on in San Francisco, you know, so, and not in every city though, by the way, I mean, yeah, but it is in Phoenix, but it's not in Scottsdale. So, you, you know, you just have to kind of pick and choose. But the story is those people, Patrick, they pay for parking. They pay for gas. They get a cup of coffee. They, they get a bagel. They, they use the corner deli for, for lunch. You know, they hit the ATM. They, you know, think of all the habits that happen when people are in and people are out, you know, and they, they have an early, you know, a happy hour with a, some business folks, you know, and then they grab the train and they go. Or the you know, or an Uber or a taxi or whatever, and they go back to wherever they go. And so all of those things are impacted, every single piece. And so that's just one building. And so you start to take a look at the ripple effects of these small businesses, and and for sure the landlords are screwed. You know that own those buildings and the people that have the leases with those landlords. You know there's massive discussion around lease negotiation or lease modifications or forbearance or whatever it might be. But the landlords, for sure, are not paying the mortgages, probably not even really paying a lot of their operating expenses, you know, depending on how many businesses are actually paying. And, you know, I talked to another friend of mine who is in Chicago, and he's, he goes, I'm paying rent. I've been paying rent on my space for a year, and I'm, you know, my, all my staff's at home. So it just depends on the capitalization of the business and all that. But he said at the end, he's probably not going to renew. So I think that's all coming, but I don't want to just make this about commercial office space. But the point is, is that you've got all this ripple effect happening. And I think what's happened is people are now looking, they're going, you know, do I really need to spend three, four, five thousand dollars a month in rent? And they're moving. And that's these migration patterns that you were talking about. And so I've heard crazy stories, but um, generally what people are doing is they're not moving very far. So they're saying that they're moving like 20 or 30 miles away on the average, like 70% of the people. But really, you think about that. Like if you're in San Francisco, 20, 30 miles away, you could easily reduce your mortgage or your rent by half. And there are a lot of people moving from different states and you know all that's happening. And um, so that's creating depressions and bubbles in individual areas, depending on where people go. And the jury's still kind of out on what that's going to look like. But right now it's looking like Arizona, Florida, and Texas. Obviously, there's little towns like Boise, Idaho, and stuff like that that are jumping up too. But I think that has a lot to do with Seattle. But people are moving around and they're looking for affordability. And to your point, low tax, good weather, all of those things. Because if you can Zoom, why not Zoom when you can save quite a bit of money a month? It's almost like a reverse commute now, right? You use your office, you use your home, and then you go to your office every once in a while as opposed to the other way around where you go maybe somewhere for a retreat 
It's kind of the opposite. And that's, I mean, the ripple effect, you hit the nail on the head, right? Economies depend on $1 turning into $30, meaning you pay a person a dollar, they spend that dollar. That person takes the dollar, spends a dollar. That person takes the dollar, spends a dollar. You know, and that's not happening, right? The velocity of money is at the lowest point ever, right? Especially in fear. Most people don't spend when they're afraid. They, they hoard, right? And they stock up. So it'd be interesting. And you made the point a moment ago where we really haven't seen the impact yet. We're, you're starting to see it. And there definitely were patterns already of people moving you know, out of these big metro expensive areas. But now it's almost inevitability. Do you pay attention to any specific resources that give you data on that that's, that's relevant? Oh, a lot. I'm all over everything, man. I read as much as I can. I really do. you know, And I, I think that that's what you have to do. So I look at for migration, I study the, believe it or not, the moving companies have really good data, uh, really good data. North American van lines, Atlas van lines, U-Haul, Rider truck, you know, because you think about it, like if you live in Salt Lake, but if people are moving from Salt Lake to, you know, Phoenix, that's a data point, right? So a lot of that stuff, it's not perfect, but if you start to look at a lot of these different things, out-of-state driver's licenses turned in, you know, there's all these things that you can look at to figure out the migration patterns. And that's going to create, that'll give you a good sense of kind of where people are going. The media gets it later. I subscribe to every single, all these brokerage houses, you know, CBRE, Bercadia, Grumman Ellis, Transwestern, whoever, JLL, they all have these annual reports. Now they are slanted a little bit, you know, because they're brokers and they're trying to, but the truth is, is I get all of those. So I love those because they have these big analysts that look at all the markets and kind of what's going on. And then those go out to the investors. So I would suggest, and that's all free, just get on all those websites. Another really good one is ULI, the Urban Land Institute is another great one. And then Price Waterhouse does an incredible one. Actually, I got it right here. This one, this is called the Emerging Trends of Real Estate. And uh, it's Price Waterhouse. Yes, yeah. yeah, I love this thing, man, because it just goes into all this data. And that's all I do all day long is look at that stuff and try to figure out because if I'm going to be investing or going somewhere, I want to be, as Wayne Gretzky says, right? You want to skate to where you think the puck's going to go, not to the puck. And so a lot of times people like GameStop, you know, (laughs) you want to look at the bigger picture. Like Elon Musk is a guy that does that. Like he's, you know, he's way out over here and people get surprised, but it makes sense. Like, I don't know if you know, the other day, my friend was trying to turn in his Tesla on a lease and they, he couldn't buy it. <laughs> and I was like, on the Tesla why? threes, I know they're doing that with all of them. I go, why? He's like, oh, well, he's going to do the uh, autonomous, yeah, autonomous uh, taxi service, basically, right? And all of a sudden, there goes Uber and Lyft, right? And so, I mean, it's all coming. Like, you just got to pay attention to this stuff. It's the ripple effect where, I mean, it's chess. Right. In chess, you can play by each move and respond to each move, right? Or you can know three, four, five moves in advance. And there are a lot of, I mean, the entrepreneurs, the successful ones are able to do that. And obviously, you know, in your space, you're doing the exact same thing where you're looking at those leading, those leading indicators, which could do this and then do this and then do this and then do this. And that's where the opportunity is. Yeah. That's a software play. Elon Musk, you know, into the taxi business. That's how he sees it. The cars are insignificant. There was a flyover last summer of Starlink, right? Which is the satellite internet company that he has. And there's 
thousand, I think there's like 1200, 1300 satellites and it's not even online yet. I mean, they're, they're not live. They're not live. Yet, I know the guy's like, like, he so, sees you know, where all this stuff yeah, is going and he, you know, he does crazy my, stuff, but this is my point. So he's sitting back going, okay, the key to entrepreneurship is solving problems, right? What can be done better? You know, he just does it at a massively bigger level than most people. But for us and for your folks here on the, on this podcast, it's housing. Like there's going to be a massive housing need in the next 10 years as a result of, you know, everything is happening. Unemployment and fallout of, on the evictions, fallout on the forbearance, fallout on the defaults and the defaults that are going to happen through the lenders. It's going to be just like 2008. And the government at some point is going to stop writing checks to prop it all up. And trust me, it's going to happen. And all the businesses that are out of business that, you know, it's this next 10 year run, Patrick, is going to be incredible for entrepreneurs. I was talking to my, to this morning, I went to the gym. I go in the mornings, my trainer wants to open a gym. And I said, dude, wait, you know, find out who's locked all the doors and put chains around now. And then go call the landlord and say, I'm not going to give you any money, but I'll take this over. You don't have to pay for any of the equipment. You know, and then you know, go from there. It's he's like, how do you learn all that? He goes, where do I learn all this stuff? I go, dude, trust me, <laughs> trial and error, man. It's a lot, Exper- lot of experience, a lot of bad, a lot of bad decisions. And he's like, that's a great idea. I go, if you have to use your own money in the next ten years, I go, you're lazy. I said, it's all how you think and what you see. And Elon Musk did throw a lot of his money in early on because, as you know, but. The majority, the overwhelming majority of everything he does is financed with other people's money. Yep. And uh, government. (laughs) And it always will be. And so that's the whole point. If you guys think that you have to save your own cash and do it yourself, then you're thinking really, really small and you're not using a system that's in place for you that is there. And again, it's just a bias. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.